Ball's Striking a Chord podcast. Today we have Dream Theater bassist John Mayung on the show. John's got a brand new Ernie Ball Music Man artist series six string bass that is set to be released in just a few days. So we dig into that. John also discusses his experience attending Berklee College of Music with John Petrucci and Mike Portnoy. We talk about the early days of Dream Theater, tips for practicing bass, songwriting, and more. Ladies and gentlemen, John Mayung. John Mayung, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Evan. Thanks for having me. Yeah. All right, we'll start here. You guys, uh, as in Dream Theater, are obviously known for your musicianship. What drove you to to reach this high level of musicianship? It's just something that happened. You know, it's been over 30 years in progress. And uh, it's just been a serendipitous journey, musical journey, you know, no complaints, very, very, very happy with where we are, you know, every, every year brings new challenges, new surprises, and uh, this year being no different, for sure, just feel very fortunate to, to be part of the whole thing. Yeah. But going back early days, you could have gone in lots of directions. There are lots of kinds of rock music. But you chose this path of very demanding musicianship. Were you pulled in that direction early on? Right. De- definitely. I mean, the, our influences um, were bands like Rush and Yes, Iron Maiden, uh, you know, Black Sabbath. And you know, we, we found all those bands uh, to be really interesting uh, in the way they composed their songs it wasn't necessarily uh, formulaic or, or repetitive in any way. It was, um, it was, it was very creative uh, rhythmically and, and melodically. And uh, it just, it was, it was, it was the Prague era that really um, brought me into wanting to be a musician. So once you set your sights in the Prague space, did that entail lots of practice? Yeah, it, it entailed lots of um, just getting in tune with, with the albums that we thought were great, you know, playing along to Rush albums, Iron Maiden albums, and uh, and then getting together and uh, rehearsing uh, songs as a group, as a band, and uh, and one thing led to another, and eventually uh, we created a band while while at Berkeley College of Music, and that and that eventually became Dream Theater. Right, know? right. I guess I assume when I look at a band like Dream Theater, that you know. Any member of the band must have kind of a crazy work ethic. Does that ring true to you? Yeah, I mean, we we took what we did, we we take what we do seriously, and uh, even prior to when we actually got our first record deal, I mean, we would rehearse Monday through Friday from like six o'clock at night to midnight, uh, wherever we could, basement of stores or someone's apartment. Um, but but we we would find a way to do it. I mean that started up at Berkeley. Yeah. We we were doing that Monday through Friday. We would sign out rooms. Each guy could sign out a room for like two hours. So we would all like get in line and sign out the same room. The the room was E nineteen. Ah, okay. And uh, and yeah, and we would just set up at six o'clock at night and 
and, and just be there till midnight playing whatever, jamming and writing stuff. That's pretty amazing that that, that can be your, your college experience. Yeah, it, it, was, it was pretty busy, you know, between that and, and the classes during the day and, and all the stuff that we had to get done. There, there wasn't a minute when we weren't doing nothing, that, that was for sure. Yeah, yeah, I want to get back to that. I want to back up a little bit, though. How old were you when you started playing bass? I made the switch around like 16. Oh, wow. So fairly yeah. late. From, switched from where? Well, I was, I was um, a classical violinist from like 5 to like 15. So you had 10 years under your belt on the violin. Yeah. And then uh, one thing led to another and I picked up a bass and and fell in love with it and kind of wanted to understand that side of music more, um, the the rock side of music more. Yeah. So that's when it really started taking hold at at around 15 or 16. That's interesting. So you must have your, a lot of your left hand skills in place from the violin but the so the right hand i would think is is where you'd have to uh sort of catch up right yeah definitely there was uh, a curve but it felt right yeah all right so as far as technical ability goes i assume growth isn't perfectly linear but when did you when did most of that happen for you was that early on you feel like you you had your chops up to par pretty quick i think it was just a matter of directing influences you know that the energy that we got from listening to bands. After a while, when you play along to records and then if that gets to gel and sit with you for a while, then you start redirecting it and sort of taking that influence and um, giving it a different direction. So I think that that was a big part of it in how we developed. You know, we didn't just play something for no reason. It was because we heard it from somewhere we practiced it and then it turned into something else over time. And so, yeah, it was definitely rooted in our influences and what we were listening to. And, and a lot of it still is to this day, you know, it, it has to come from somewhere. It has to come from some sort of reference point. Right. Hey, when did you first meet John Petrucci? When did I first meet John was probably in, uh, in high school, junior high school. Same high school or junior high school? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Did you bond over music initially or was it just a general acquaintance because you went to the same school? No, we were both into music. Um, he played guitar and we played guitar. He played in a different band. You know, just one, one, one thing to another over time, you know, our bands knew each other, we were friends. And then it, it just got to the point where it was just like, well, if we got together, it would be like, I really... It, it, that would be like the ultimate situation of the ultimate band. And, and it eventually did happen. Okay. We're, we were playing uh, in the same group prior to leaving for uh, music college. What was that band called in high school? He was in a band called uh, Centurion at the time. And then his bass player left. So, so I guess that's kind of where we're at, but I don't know if we, when we started working together, it, it started changing and turning into a different thing. So I don't even know if prior to Berkeley, if we ever really officially called ourselves anything. Oh, okay. We, we were just really good friends and we'd get together and, and uh, jam, jam on musical ideas together and write stuff. But that's a really interesting question because I, I don't know if we actually considered ourselves part of any one band. I guess if anything it would have been the band that he was in Centurion, but um. Yeah. I, yeah, it wasn't until we got into Berkeley, we met Mike, and then uh, it, was, it wasn't until that 
that period where we started thinking of a band name and, and, and the original name during that period was Majesty. Right. And then after a while, eventually changed to Dream Theater. And, and it's been that ever since. So did you and I guess I'll call him JP or Petrucci. I'll try to do that to distinguish the Johns. But did you and JP jointly decide to go to Berkeley College of Music? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, it, it was it was no question that we wanted to continue with music and it seemed like the logical place to go being that, you know, we, we had heard of so many other musicians that we admired, you know, Al Demiel being one of them that that had gone and visited the school. And um, it just seemed like a really good idea at the time. And so luckily we... Yeah, luckily you did. Yeah, luckily we did. So was the goal partly to actually maybe find a drummer, start a band at the school? What, what was the main goal in attending Berkeley? That's a good question. It was just a very free moment. I, I don't know. It was just, all right, let's go there and learn because we kind of had a, a base of a band back on Long Island, you know, with, with Kevin Moore, who played keyboards. He, he went to a different college of music, uh-huh. uh, with Fredonia College of Music. It was kind of just very free-flowing then. It wasn't things set in stone. I guess, you know, when we had gone to the level where, you know, we're off and running it and going to college, it was, that was just the next stepping stone where it was like, okay, well, let's see what we can learn here and see where it takes us. And, but, but the natural thing was, you know, finding a drummer that we could really gel with. And Yeah. Did that connection come about pretty quickly? Yeah. I mean, we, we had jammed with a couple of different drummers. I think we were like walk around school and I think John saw Mike playing. Uh, and then I think he asked Mike, you know, they're during uh, the next day in the cafeteria or something, if you want to get there and get together and jam. And he said, yes. And, and then from that day, you know, we just hit it off. And was he into similar kinds of music? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He was totally into the same kind of music. And he also lived on Long Island. It was, it all kind of clicked. Yeah. So besides coming out with a uh, world-class band, what, what else did you get out of, out of the schooling? It's an amazing, like, melting pot of musicians where you were very immersed in a situation where there were people that were very into, like, punk music, jazz, funk bass, classical. You know, it, it was just a real melting pot of cultures and stuff musical cultures and um and i kind of thought that was like the greatest thing about it was uh it was the people that we met and got to see what was the decision like to to leave berkeley we just really didn't want to do anything other than play and be a band and and we saw school as sort of well that would just deter us from from doing what we thought was more important Right. So, you know, it, 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 was, it was a definite change that, that we weren't expecting, but, but it became the logical thing to do. It, it just seemed like the right thing to do, that that made sense. Yeah, if that's your end goal, then do it. Yeah. So with the original concept of the band, did you all have it, the idea mapped out of what instruments you'd want to add? Like, we want a keyboardist, not a second guitarist. We want a singer. Was that concept mapped out? Right. We well, Kevin Kevin Moore, who is um, who had gone to Fredonia School of Music. You know, yeah. we just immediately would hook back to get. It, it was just implied that he was part of 
okay. the team. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that he was the keyboard player. The, the only thing that was um, not really decided was, you know, the vocalist aspect of the band. So we, you know, but we were with a few different vocalists before actually, before James Labrie actually right. uh, came, came, came in. Yeah. Yeah. There, there were like two or three other people that we were working with. Yeah. Was there, it seems like there's this kind of phase between you getting your new name and then finding a permanent singer. Did you ever think about breaking up or was it Rocky or were you guys always steadfast in, in pushing the band forward? Um, I mean, we definitely had ups and downs where we were just like, all right, we got to audition uh, another uh, vocalist audition. You know, there were definitely, it was, a, it was definitely tiring sometimes, but I mean, but in no way that, it ever get to the point where it was like, well, we've had it, you know, it was just forging forward. And this is like late eighties basically. Right. Yeah. So this time a lot of bands are a little more on like the glam side of things, maybe, you know, really good kind of shreddy guitar solos, but are there other, other bands more in line with what you guys are doing or where did you, where did you think you'd fit in genre wise at the time? I don't, I don't think we were worried about fitting in. I think it was um, we were just creating music that we would that that we hoped that would become popular or or would find its listeners, you know. Just based on like the demos we would do and and the feedback that we would get, it, it was it was all pretty positive and 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 kind of inspired us to 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 grow and to keep doing it because we 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 felt that there was something about it that, that was inspiring. It was um, something that we would hope that would happen over time, which it did. Yeah. I guess you guys are playing gigs around New York City in the beginning. You know, I mean, that's that's an interesting part of how things happen for us is we, we really didn't have the whole club playing ritual that, that a lot of bands have. You know, a lot of our life, everyday life, prior to um, getting an album deal, it was just mainly just uh practicing i mean just just jamming from uh we would just rent the, the basement of a store and monday through friday we, we'd be there every night so so that was more of our ritual um and, and not so much playing out live i mean we did play out live but it wasn't it wasn't like an every weekend thing or or anything like that you know occasionally we would have a show somewhere what what kind of store you said that what kind of store would you be playing in the basement of a store is it just like a, a store that would need to supplement their rent so they'd rent out their basement yeah we i mean we find one situation and then it would get to the point where we'd have to leave so you know i'd go out john would go out sometimes we would go out together just knocking on storefronts and, and seeing if they would have something available there were a couple of different ones at, at one point we were like underneath like a hair salon Okay. Um, and that worked out for a while. And then eventually we wound up uh, in the basement of this like meat locker, that, that this, uh, <laughs> this, this butcher store. Yeah. In the basement, he had a couple of different rooms that he would run out. So we were wow. lucky enough to get, to get one of those. Did you have to like walk through hanging meat slabs to, to get to your jam room? No, no, no. It wasn't oh, like that. Okay. <laughs> no. No, I mean you. You go down there. You could hear like all the refrigeration, all the machinery. It, it was separate. We had our own entrance. Were there any contemporary bands that you were influenced by at that time that are doing similar things, or was it you still sort of into the, the Iron Maiden influence? And yes, it, it was pretty much those bands. 
but then everything changed, you know, once, once we went to college, you know, we met Mike, a, a lot of, you know, music was changing, you know, Metallica was, was the buzz, you know, uh-huh. you have to hear this band. And, and, and I think Mike was actually one of the first people to turn me on to them. I remember hearing like, it was like Master of Puppets. So then like the whole heavy turn in music, it became an influence as well. You know, as a result of just meeting different people at, at, at music college, we got turned on to a lot of different uh, styles of music. So, so then it would broaden, you know, so, so, so that's where go, going to a school like that uh, really, really came into play because it um, just kind of opened you up to so much more than what you initially uh, was exposed to as a yeah. musician, you know. I'm curious on these early gigs, I know you said you weren't gigging a lot, but on some of them, were you guys just blowing people away with your musicianship? I would just think an unknown band, if people aren't suspecting the level of musicianship that you guys bring, that they would just be blown away to walk in and, and see what's going on. Do you remember making an impression on people that way? I don't know. I mean, it wasn't like, it wasn't like there was a whole lot of people. You know, it was, it was always a modest gathering of people people would comment on what we were doing and, and some people really did what we were doing. I mean, by the time we were done, it was probably like three, two or three or four in the morning, you know, looking to pack up and, and get back home. So it wasn't really like, yeah, it wasn't like a big social experience. It was just by the time the set was done, it was uh, time to like pack up the leave before the sun came up. Right. <laughs> you didn't have time to hang out and soak up compliments. Okay. Let's talk about songwriting in the band. So as far as writing credit, it looks like sometimes Petrucci will write a song, you'll write a song. Other times it's just the band in general. Do you guys write and share ideas through creating demos and then sharing those demos with each other? What usually happens is there'll be a, there'll be a spark. Um, and in, in the case of um, a lot of songs, that, that spark is usually like the intro or the riff of the song. But when we're all present in a room and, and someone will play something and it sparks everyone's attention, it just kind of sparks a rhythm and then things start developing. So, and, and it just kind of turns into a journey. Interesting. So you guys are actually all in the same room. I guess it's not, it shouldn't be that unusual, but it seems like more and more I'm talking to people who are writing remotely with their bandmates, but often you guys are in the same room working on ideas. Yeah, that that's one. I don't. I guess it's sort of like we're just working on a sculpture or a painting together. You know. Yeah. Where where we're um, you know trying to connect uh, with with um, what's going on rhythmically, which is driving the the flow of the song. And as the song continues, everyone will have an idea of, of where to go. It, it can be a very sort of um, you know interactive and spontaneous situation yeah um and i mean even like the latest album distance over time you know we just kind of went to each guy all right well what, what do you got john let's 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 hear this and, and work on what do you got mike john what what, what kind of a bass riff do you have or, or what, what are you thinking and then we go to jordan and then it would kind of the spark would be thrown out there and then we'd kind of all develop it and then demo it and listen back and uh, and then edit and start making changes based on what we were hearing. A lot, a lot of times, 
you know, everyone is really into something, but then like one person will not be into something. So then we uh, revisit it until everyone is happy. And I think that's sort of what, what makes things happen is when everyone is finally happy with it. Yeah. Run those ideas through the gauntlet. Yeah. I've noticed lyrics are written by different members of the band. Does the person writing the lyrics also write the melody? No. Um, okay. Usually when a song is finished, John would come up with like, um, you know, John, Jordan, and James will kind of construct what they think is the best sort of guide melody that is working with the songs. Anyway, with the sections that have vocals. And then the challenge lyrically is if you, you know, depending on what song you're working on, the lyricist will have a basic guide track. The only thing that's really holding you back from, from, from just saying, okay, here, here's a bunch of words and, you know, hopefully it'll work out is, uh, is a lot of times you'll come up with words or, 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 or something that, that is written on paper, uh, some sort of concept, but to, to make it work melodically is it, the biggest challenge. So then that's when you have to break out the dictionary that, you know, the, the source yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and, st- and start boiling out all these, you know, well, what's, what's a good word for this melody, you know, this, this many syllables. Yeah, exactly. So, so a lot of the times it's good to kind of just work with James because he'll kind of like tell you, well, that's really hard to sing or that's easy saying, you know, right. or yeah. something. Yeah, yeah. try to find a word with only, you know, three syllables, you know, it'd be. Yeah. You could, have, you could have a great lyric, but it just sounds awkward smushed into that, that melody. Right. So that's the, uh, the biggest challenge to, to lyric writing is, um, finding the right words that work with the melody that, and uh, in such a way where you don't lose the, the initial intent or meaning of what you were trying to convey. Is there a certain way you think about your role as a bass player in Dream Theater's music? I think my role is to just kind of be the best that, that I can be and find uh, and contribute things that are relevant so there's that whole side of it. And the other, you know, and the other side of it too is being, being a bass player. It's also um, a supportive instrument too. It's also a lot of, you know, you know, listening and, and laying back and finding uh, ways to, to embellish upon uh, what's going on musically. So, but it's hard to really think of it like that because I just, I just see us as, as a big team. Yeah. And we all just kind of just know what to do. It's just everyone, everyone is just doing their own thing, but, but it's the right thing. I think that's a cool part of, uh, of being in a band, you know, or, or any, or any other band, you know, that, you know, what, what made that situation work was that group of people and everyone was just doing that one thing that they did. And, and that's what made it work. Yeah. And it's a uh, fortunate chemistry. Right. Uh, do you have any practicing advice for bass players? I think the best sort of practice for me, like two parts. I, I still love playing along to records. And then the other type of practicing is, um, is where I'm not thinking. I'm just playing. I'm just moving my fingers. There, there's a time to think. And that's when you're actually like focusing on playing, playing along to a record or, or learning a, a piece of music. 
classical music or whatever. And then there's a whole other part where I think it's just good to play and to not think of what you're playing and to, and just to have it be sort of like, you know, a set exercise or something that you like to do that keeps your hands in shape. But it, it's just more of um, a mind, body, and spiritual or physical state that you, that you go. But, but it's like void of, of thinking, you know, you just sort of just let yourself go. Yeah. So, so, so to me, that's, that's part of the balance, I, I think, because sometimes, sometimes thinking is overrated. So is that a way that you can, if you're just letting yourself go and letting yourself flow, that new ideas might come up or um, in a way getting in tune with your, your fretboard? Yeah, that, that definitely um, triggers or I, I, I believe it makes you more receptive to coming up with ideas. So, I mean, that's one way of going about it. And, and the other way of coming up with, coming up with ideas is, um, you know, sometimes the first thing you play when you pick up an instrument becomes an idea because you're not thinking about it, right? Right, yeah. You, you just pick something up and all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait, what was that? Wait, quick, hit record. Yeah, that definitely happens to me. That's true. So you guys have uh, 14 studio albums. Do you have a favorite? No, you know what? They're all... They're all important to me because they all reflect a certain period of my life. The important ones, like like uh, like images and words, and that whole period, you know, closest to being my favorite would probably be those records because of what those records did did for us and, and how like pivotal and important they were. Yeah, and, and all the memories and experiences that were attached with that whole period. I mean, it was um, I mean, it was unbelievable. Just you know, going from like the basement uh, of like a retail store to like all of a sudden the world knows about you, you know, that that was a really unbelievable time how quickly that happened. I bet. Is there a dream theater song that is hardest to play technically, either in the studio or live? Well, the most challenging stuff would probably be like the instrumental based songs, like Dance of Eternity. That, that, that will always be a challenge to play. What countries are you guys biggest in? We have a fan base all over the world, but uh, the places where we tend to play to the most people would definitely be Europe, whether it be playing festivals or um, and arenas. We, we tend to play more like small, small, medium-sized arenas in Europe, uh, more so than anywhere else in the world. Does any country stand out in your mind as, as a favorite to tour in? They're all amazing for their own reasons, you know. Um, it's incredible. It's a really kind of unique situation where we get to see the where we where we get to see that aspect of the world um, and go to places like Joe Jakarta, Indonesia, or uh, we played uh, this one place up in uh, Norway that was really far, pretty close to. Uh, the North Pole. I forget wow. what that city was, but um, yeah, we get to go to some pretty remote places as well. Not only do you get to visit these remote places, you have adoring fans in these places that know and and love your music. It's a pretty amazing and unique job. No, no, it is. It is really amazing. I don't know. I guess it's it's its own kind of phenomenon in a way. What do you enjoy doing apart from music? You know, th- that's a good question because. Like my idea of getting away from doing what I'm doing happens once in a while. And if I do do something, it'll maybe like I'll go play around the golf with a bunch of friends 
and and on tour, maybe on a day off, we'll go golfing. But, you know, the day goes by really fast right now. So I have no problem just staying home and, and playing or listening or, or, or learning more about um, recording software. Right now, where my head is at right now is just kind of, there's no reason to really leave what I do right now because I'm not really bored with it. You know, in fact, it's the exact opposite. You know, I wake up every day and try to find as much pos- uh, much time as possible to, um, to spend it musically. That's great. All right. Word on the street is that you have a new Ernie Ball Music Man bass. Yes, I'm totally psyched about it. So it's a bongo, but, but definitely not a standard bongo. So maybe you can point out some of the, the key features. Back in uh, 2007, uh, that was when the first bongo six-string was made. And then in 2008, I started getting into uh, the custom modeling of, of the bass. You know, one thing led to another, and it got to the point where I uh, wanted to, to see if you know, we, we could take this further. So, so, so I asked uh, Sterling Ball if there was the opportunity to, to do something and, um, and he agreed to do something. So I am forever grateful for being given that uh, platform. So we came up with um, a six-string version of the bongo that, that has a real great feel, unique qualities. Um, it looks really cool. It's very inspiring. Yeah. I love the fretboard, how it has that it's rosewood and maple. Yeah, that definitely is, is one of the cool things that, that worked out. Um, the origin of that, that idea is sort of like the uh, spiral of life. The golden ratio, right? Right, the golden ratio. Um, and the golden rectangle is what kind of gave me the, the idea because it sort of looks like a fret marker when I initially looked at it and I thought, well, you know, that would be cool to implement uh, on the neck. And then um, after kind of delving into it a little more, it turns out when you map out the golden rectangle from like the nut of the neck all the way to like the bridge, you know, as you work your way up the fretboard that way, as the rectangle uh, expands, it gets larger, the lines, of you know one side of the rectangle, the, the lines uh, line up exactly on the second and like on the twelfth fret where the harmonics are on the string. Huh? Yeah. So you have natural harmonic unity within that shape, within that uh, geometric shape. So that's something that you won't notice unless you actually study it and break it down. And because uh, so, so, what I did was I took the neck off the base. And then I traced it onto uh, a bunch of uh, paper that I had taped together so, so that we yeah. had uh, an exact model, sketch model of the surface area, the neck. And then we would work out how this uh, golden rectangle would, how we would actually map itself out. And then we discovered how it kind of just correlates with all the different harmonic points in the string. And the ratio of the rosewood to the maple is the golden ratio. So... The rosewood is 1.6, whatever the decimal is, bigger than the maple portion. Just so people can picture it, this runs the uh, length of the, the fretboard. Right. When, when you look at the golden ratio, every 
uh, every fret, the, uh, the rosewood would be the A section. And yes. The, uh, and then the maple would be the B section. And it looks like it lines up right about on the D string. It's, ex- it's exactly. exactly on there. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah. that, that was a, another cool thing that happened. How we, I mean, it's not like one side or the other. It is like exactly down the split. That's really cool. And, and on top of that, it looks really cool. I haven't seen it on another yeah. instrument. I don't know if it is out there, but it, it's, it looks awesome on the bongo. Yes. And we should mention, so it's one of the, the key features is that it's six string, but it's basically on a five string neck, right? So the spacing is a little tighter. Right. Yeah. Well, that's just uh, what I wanted. It, it, just, it just felt right. You know, Are you able um, to play faster with with that spacing? I don't know if necessarily faster, but mm. but what you do realize is um, where, where you go musically with that instrument is very much dependent on the quality or the instrument or the tool that that you're playing that is available, and and the best situation is to have something that works with you and doesn't hold you back in any way. So that was the motivation, the pursuit to kind of like, well, okay, well, this doesn't feel right. Let's, let's try something else. And, um, uh, and, and it's a really long journey and it's a really big challenge. And I'm very thankful to, to the patients uh, that, uh, that the developers had in working with me and, and trying all these things out because a, a lot of times, you know, I try something and it wouldn't be a good idea. But that, but that's also part of the process. Yeah, I think everyone feels how rewarding it is to actually come up with uh, such a quality product at the end. Yeah, I mean that's something that I don't think everyone will realize when you when you pick up something. Is sometimes you don't realize it's very easy to upset the balance of something. So uh, where I feel we are with with the artist series bongo that that will be coming out six string bongo is uh that we're at about uh, you know i definitely feel that we're at a balance point right now where um it's like being at the top of a mountain we, we've been on this journey climbing this mountain and now we're at the top and and it's almost like well i don't want to do anything at this point to to uh throw it off you know yeah it's out of good it's, it's out of good balance right now yeah yeah uh, I'll just mention one more feature. It only has two knobs, correct? So it's a volume and then a blend knob, but it's actually, I don't know what you, the, what do you say. It's notched, the blend knob, right? So you have, what, right. five settings on there? Right. I should say it's two pickups. So it's blending a blend between the uh, neck pickup and the bridge pickup. I mean, that happened because I never really used the tone or the bass control. That was originally uh, part of what I was using. Uh, I just never found a need for them. So being that I wasn't using them, it was like, well, let's just, well, then let's just get rid of them, you know, because that aspect of the sound, you know, I, I can, I can dial in more bass or, pre, or, 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 uh, or treble or tone from like the, the bass preamp or, uh, or, or, or you could, or the onboarding EQ on, on a mixing board or something. Um, yeah. It, it seemed like um, the most useful thing was um, is to pick up blend knob because from from there it was like instantaneous. You can change the weight of the sound, and and a lot of the times when I'm trying to like get comfortable with the sound, where 
Um, I feel like it's doing something in the track. It has to do with the, the level or the weightedness of the sound. Uh, and the pickup selector, the pickup blend knob accomplishes that. The, the further you deviate from the center towards the bridge, the thinner the sound gets. And when you deviate closer towards the neck from the center, the tone tends to get a little bit more, uh, a little bit more weighty. I, you know, I found that that was like really the, the, the best kind of, that's the, that was the best for me. If I needed something different, usually it was one of those settings that got the job done. Yeah. So I guess you have one setting where it's just neck pickup, one where it's just bridge pickup, and then you have those three options in between. And it's nice because it does click into place because otherwise you really are just guessing where you are in a blend knob. Right. You know, that's definitely why I do it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, John, thank you for your time. I know you have a, a busy day tomorrow. Speaking of the space, right? You're, uh, you're going to film some, some promo material for the base. Yeah. Well, John Myung, thanks for being on the podcast. Oh, absolutely. Thank, thanks for having me, Evan. Thanks for tuning in to Ernie Ball's Striking Accord podcast. Thanks, John Myung. Don't forget to check out his new base. And why not give us a kind review on your favorite podcast app? If you'd like to contact us, please email strikingaccord at ernieball.com. Yeah, where'd you fly in from? Flew in from uh, Newark, New Jersey. Okay, so, oh, it's 11 o'clock for you. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks yeah, for doing this. Oh, no problem.